the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay! <laughs> I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, oh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program is made possible with support from Seth David Radwell, a recent guest on the program and author of American Schism, How the Two Enlightenments Hold a Secret to Healing Our Nation, released in July 2021. As Publishers Weekly writes in its recent glowing review of American Schism, business executive Radwell's epic debut examines the historical influences that have led to what he sees as the collapse of politics in the United States. Seth Radwell makes the case that the current chasm between the American right and left can be traced back to the 18th century's Age of Enlightenment and the basic tenets of liberty, equality, and reason. American Schism provides a historical perspective that can help bridge current day divides. American Schism by Seth David Radwell is available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and wherever books are sold. For more information, go to americanschismbook.com. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. It's time now for Armchair Politics. Join host Tom Sumner for this weekly reality check on current events in local, state and national politics and the real issues that really matter. You too can be part of Armchair Politics. Find us on Facebook. We let the dogs off their leash. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Armchair Politics, our weekly roundtable on the Tom Sumner Program. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes our roundtable regulars on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. Good to be here. And on the right, longtime Genesee County Republican, Henry Hatter. Good morning to you, Henry. Good morning, Tom. And joining us uh, this week, he's uh, become a, a recent uh, underwriter of the show. He's been a guest on Armchair Politics and on the uh, regular program talking about his book, American Schism, Seth David Radwell. Seth, good morning. Welcome to the show. 
Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Or I guess I Good should. Good morning. Say, I morning, should say. Seth. I should say welcome back, Seth. <laughs> yes. Uh, Pleasure to be here. We always start out with a few quotes, and and, uh, the first one is uh, fashioned after Flint-based comedian Mark Bondo's Facebook feature, Finish the Joke. We open armchair politics with Finish the Quote. This is where I ask you, how would you finish this quote? And it goes like this. Any American who is prepared to run for president should automatically, by uh, by definition, be what? A belief. I have. I'll go. A believer in a representative <laughs> democracy. And uh, I and, think he should uh, check himself every day <clears throat> to uh, a claim that he is honest and trustworthy. Now, see, you oh, guys are so optimistic. Committed to American principles, or something like that. Yeah, you yeah. guys are, are so optimistic. I, I love that. But the actual quote is, any American who is prepared to run for president should automatically, by definition, be disqualified from ever doing so. (laughs) (laughs) That's cute. That's a good quote. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That that came from Gore Vidal. Okay. Yeah, that um, sounds like a Gorbachev quote. That just dropped yeah. my jaws. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the quotes that got my attention this week is is this one. That list of lessons is long and growing, but one thing that became clear on 9-11 and has been clear ever since is that America has always been home to heroes who run toward danger in order to do what is right. Uh, George Bush. No, oh, it, you want to, that sounds like something yeah. he, he would have said, but yeah. it was, uh, in fact, former President Barack Obama on Saturday reflected on the 20th anniversary of the September 11th terrorist attacks, play, uh, paying tribute to the thousands of Americans who died that day and reinforcing his commitment to honoring their legacy. Um, where were you that day, and how did you first hear about the attacks? Oh, I can recall. I, I was on my way to class. As a matter of fact, I, I just left the house around a little before 9, and uh, I had heard one of the planes had hit the building, but it was, wasn't clear what the, the whole story was. And by the time I got to, 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 to the school, to my, to my office, we had learned that it was a terrorist attack. And what was interesting about the class is that uh, it was, I think it was either a 9 o'clock class, probably, maybe a 10, and uh, one of the students in the class was uh, John Cherry Jr., who's now the state rep. Oh, really? Uh, and I, I recall, recall, yeah, he, yeah he, was, he was one of the students in that, that morning class of 9-11. And then later in the day, of course, the, the campus shut down, and, and they had meetings in, in, in various buildings around, pulled in the TVs to watch what was going on. But uh, what was happening during, during the class is people would keep poking their head in every 15 minutes telling me some new information about, you know, another building had collapsed or another plane had hit and the other details that emerged as that morning played out. So, no, I recall that morning very, very well. Uh, my wife, <coughs> my wife, I was getting ready to work, and my wife told me that, did you know that an airplane hit the White House? And... They hit uh, towers, 
and uh, the towers are burning, and there are people running all over uh, <clears throat> in the streets and don't know what's going on, and a lot of pandemonium. And so we sat down and we watched that for a few minutes. What when about, it came on live. What yeah. about you, Seth? I was less than a mile away on 16th Street in Manhattan by Union Square. Ooh. And um, I remember uh, I was heading to work. And I, re I distinctly remember being on 6th Avenue around probably 16th, 17th Street and looking down and seeing it and thinking, at that point, it was only the first tower. And, and people had been saying, oh, a small plane went in. And I looked, at, looked up at it and I said, that's no small plane. By the time I got to my office on 44th Street, I was, at the time I was running uh, a Bertelsmann publishing business, um, I, it was horrific. And, of course, I watched the tower come down from the 44th floor uh, conference room in Times mm. Square. How long did it take? What was the time duration? I was, probably, I was probably in the cab less than you know, 10, 15 minutes. But at first I went to the office, and everybody was kind of crazy and watching the news and I think the tower must have come down after the second plane had hit. But now we have, you know, two towers smoking. I mean, it was horrific. I, I, I will say that I listened to a lot of the tributes over the weekend and the discussions, and I couldn't help but think that in the aftermath of 9-11, there was such a feeling of nationally and palatable. And... Uh, I reflected on that compared to where we are today, and it was—it's—it's it's quite something, given how uh, divided our country is, and uh, and seeing that incredible bond of support that encompassed us all, uh, and it was kind of—it's in some ways it was typified, it was embodied in those passengers who together gave their lives in a field over Pennsylvania to save the lives of others. It, the, the, those strangers coming together in a valiant effort. Uh, really reaffirmed the American credo to me. And so it, it's just an interesting contrast to where we are today. Yeah, and some people are calling uh, Ground Zero there in New York where the Twin Towers stood uh, the, at the World Trade Center um, as Ground Zero for the uh, political divides that we have now. And I'm not sure that that really rings true, especially... Uh, you know, after considering your book, Seth, uh, American Schism, and, and talking about this political divide going back to the 18th century. I think it's fascinating. I think it has it definitely played a role, but it's not completely responsible. I think there's been a lot of developments. One of the things that I think is so interesting that we kind of have to reflect on, and I do talk about it in my book, American Schism, is why? what is America for? Why have we become the envy of the world over the last hundred years or more? And it's so interesting because, you know, we were, we've been on this tear to, to revenge ter a, ter a horrible terroristic act against us, and, and understandably, but, you know, the reason why we're a beacon of support for the world is not the, I don't think it's because of our military might, it's certainly not for what we were trying to accomplish in Afghanistan. It's, it's two things, really, I think. One is that we, we've been a model of, of uh, self-government that's probably the greatest experiment in self-government in history, even with all its flaws and problems. And, and the second thing I would say is that our model of meritocracy, again, far from perfect, has provided a beacon of hope to people all over the world. And so 
if those are what are if those two things are what we are admired for, that very much is in sync with the framers as they sat down at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. They were very cognizant of trying to create a blueprint that filled the credo of the Declaration, but that would be an example to the world. And, and I just I think that remembering that and thinking about potentially what our role in the world is is so interesting uh, at this moment after the 20th anniversary. Well, let me squeeze in another real quick one before we have to go to break, and it's it's simply, have at it. Who do you think said that? Hmm. Oh, um, Biden. It was. was. talking about some, um, I'm trying, I'm trying to recall what he was talking about. Yeah, it was, was President Joe Biden. The reporter's question. Yeah, it was yeah. Uh, President Joe Biden. He challenged Republicans to test his new vaccine requirements in court Friday as he uh, stressed his right. administration's yeah. commitment yeah. to keeping students safe as he visited a Washington, D.C. middle school on Friday. Are we not fighting the virus by continuing to fight over masks and vaccine? No, we're not. I, I just kind of shake my head when I see all the squabbling going over the masks over schools here yeah. in Michigan. It's, uh, <clears throat> remember I said that this, after a this, while, whole, we would... this whole fiasco is going to be settled on this campuses of K-12. Parents yeah, will right, cripple, they will cripple mm-hmm. the country. If, that, if uh, 75% of the kids are not in school, on the, the the 180 days, their funding will be dropped for that day, <clears throat> and schools will collapse with a loss of funding. It's just one day's funding; it will drive them into desperation, mm. and uh, oh, cause that's... and it would affect everything else in the chain. That's more obvious than I realized, Henry. That's that's an interesting yeah. point. Yeah. Well, remember, parents can't go to work if their kids are not in school, <laughs> and other people, other That's businesses will suffer. True. Yeah, yeah, it's a chain reaction. Yeah, and we all know how much teachers love being babysitters. <laughs> <laughs> they just got so much to do. There must be a government out there capable of helping some way. <laughs> right. Well, we got lots to uh, lots to talk about today, and uh, we'll get into more of that. But uh, we need to take a short break here. And this this is actually kind of nice the way this worked out <laughs> because usually I have to cut somebody off to go to break. But uh, if you're listening to us at WFOV 92.1 LPFM, Our Voices Radio in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions, and my good friend. Paul Herring. We're going to let them eh, squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. And then we'll continue with our weekly roundtable armchair politics featuring our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by uh, author Seth David Redwell. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. There's more armchair politics straight ahead. Everybody's doing. 
it'll brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can. Keep wearing masks correctly and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19 and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know of a place where you never get harmed, a magical place 
with magical charms indoors 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 take it away hi this is deb cherry genesee county treasurer and you're listening to the tom sumner radio show Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now on the Tom Sumner program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by author Seth Radwell. Uh, the Flint City Council agreed to allow McLaren Regional Medical Center to drop its contribution to a settlement fund tied to the Flint water crisis from $20 million to $5 million because only a handful of those who sued the hospital have agreed to settle their cases. Council voted 5-4 to four on Wednesday, September 9th to allow for the change, which was required because Flint is one of four defendants that has agreed to settle water crisis lawsuits in state and federal courts in exchange for a combined $641 million. Will one or more of the other, uh, the others named in the suit, like the city of Flint, have to make up that difference? And Paul, did I see somewhere where the council has reversed that decision? Oh, I, I, I was not, uh, I was not aware of that. Now that you mention it, but uh, let me take a quick look. Um, well, I think I think what I saw, I think Arthur Woodson had yeah. had had maybe paid tribute to the people who voted against doing it. Um, I believe you're right. I think I saw that. And and maybe I something stuck in my head that made it made it sound like it had had reversed. But uh, yeah, I, I I think that's right. I think I saw Woodson's post somewhere along the way on that issue. And I was just wondering now, is that the reason for that, I assume, is because the, that uh, McLaren is facing other separate lawsuits that are not part of the general settlement? That's my understanding, if that's correct. But $641 million has been committed to a payout. Now that's going to drop by $15 million. Is somebody going to make that up? Right. I don't know. I don't know. And I'm not sure this, you know, what's... Will, will the city make it up, or will it be the city's insurance company picking up the tab for that? I wonder, uh, because uh, fifteen million hit would be very substantial for the city's budget. I would think that's how we got into yeah, that mess. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> no, there, there, there are many times where I, on a larger issue, when I'm, I look at some of the financial situations of the city. And I really wonder if we're not going to be seeing another takeover financial supervisor of some kind coming in in the not too distant future. I think some of the, the COVID bailout money is giving us a little breathing room. But when that's gone, I, I have a hunch we're going to be hitting the wall again. I mean, I could be wrong, and I hope I am. But I think that could well happen. And they're going to find a lot of uh, double dipping in how that COVID money is used. Because there's so many people, there's so much money out there, and it's not being monitored. But I, I learned <clears throat> while I was in Orlando at a conference that the the auditors are going to be auditing that money for double dipping. People picking up budgetary oh. items that don't belong to COVID monies, and some people are, will be in trouble. We'll talk about this when we first see it. We know that it will happen. 
if it's not in a school district, in a health care center, or <clears throat> in government. So there's a lot of money yeah, out there, guys. The same thing about... Yeah, I wonder the same thing about the Flint School District. I mean, again, I think the COVID money is giving them a little breathing space. Yeah, and I wonder about their yes their long term financial survival once that money is is gone. Well, yeah, I wonder I if it was COVID money that uh, <laughs> that that rented a helicopter for the Flint Police Department <laughs> for three months. Oh, don't <laughs> exactly. That. Yes, that's right. For a hundred thousand a month for a helicopter. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's 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 move on to this one. Um, Jessica Abraham and her daughter Emery were among the more than 250 people protesting against the county's mask mandate in a demonstration on Friday, September 10th, in downtown Flint. Among them were many parents and students from a number of Genesee County communities, including Lake Fenton, Clio, Montrose, and Davison. Genesee County's uh, school mask mandate expanded to include students from pre-K to 12th grade starting Tuesday, September 7th, the result of an expanded public health order by County Medical Health Officer Dr. Pamela Hackert. Hackert became the first health officer in Michigan to issue a countywide mask mandate on August 12th, requiring all schools to enforce mask wearing for pre-K through 6th grade for students, teachers, and staff members regardless of vaccination status. For the first 90 minutes, hundreds gathered out front of both the Genesee County Administration Building and Flint City Hall before marching further into downtown. The crowd stopped outside the Genesee County Sheriff's Department chanting toward the building to ask Genesee County Sheriff Chris Swanson to walk with us. The march continued uh, north. <laughs> that's going to be a thing for Chris from now on, I think. The march, I think that's true. That's the march be, yeah. continued north on Saginaw Street along the historic bricks, stopping outside of the entrance to the Genesee County Health Department where the crowd took over the sidewalk, chanting in unison, Unmask Our Kids. No officials addressed the crowd from either building and and this is just to catch uh, Seth up a little bit that reference to Genesee County Sheriff Chris Swanson and walk with us was um, his reaction to a uh, Black Lives Matter group and and he made national news um, for his his reaction to marchers in the wake of the the George Floyd killing when he said, what would you like me to do? And one of the people in the crowd had the wherewithal to say, walk with us. And he put down all the riot gear, and he and his deputies marched with the crowd. And it, and it made national news. And, wow. And so that, that walk with us thing is, is going to become a, a little bit of a signature for Chris Swanson, I think. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, the the question the the question is: Will area students who refuse to wear masks or get vaccinated get expelled or be forced back to remote learning? Well, I'll tell you what. In schools, try to get all of the kids to walk in step, lockstep, in anything, and you will not get it. And and young kids, you remember the case on the one of the airlines where the mom had a baby on there and the baby refused to put that on and it created havoc throughout the plane. And uh, there were all kind of proposed solutions as to what you should do with the kid. 
and uh, <clears throat> but uh, uh, somehow they got through that, and that same kind of situation occur in schools. There are things that you just can't enforce. You you, you become abusive and oppressive if you tried. My understanding, Henry, is that that the the enforcement of that will 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 rest with either the local school boards or individual local school officials. Is that correct? That well, we have this, the the countywide mandate that actually deciding whether school students get expelled or go to virtual learning or something else will rest with, with each local school district. Is that is that your understanding? It will. Well, the board itself that makes the rules. The superintendent reports to the board. Now, uh, but boards can't make the superintendent enforce something that's unenforceable. So the board looks bad, and then oh, all of a sudden, every yeah. Well, what's, the, what's the likelihood? Or even every teacher have to have to figure out how to enforce that thing. Yes. Yeah. What's the, what's the likelihood yeah. that that kids are going to just start showing up to school without wearing masks? And that's what will happen. Kids can, and what are you going to do? You're going to stand them against the wall and shoot them? Well, you got the moms to deal with, and you got the de parents and the grandparents to deal with. So there is a touchy situation with kids. Mm hmm Yeah. You, you know, what? this relates to Seth's book in a lot of ways. I mean, it's amazing how this issue has become so politicized that this it, ought to be, uh, the pandemic in general ought to be something that could unite the country, but every single decision about the pandemic has become a partisan political issue in some way, whether it's getting a shot or wearing a mask or... Uh, you know what I haven't details. seen in a long time is a, a, a checkout clerk at a grocery store ask me, paper or plastic? <laughs> because <laughs> I, mean, I think them's true. fighting <laughs> words these days. <laughs> to, to pick up on that, yeah. thing, I mean, yeah. go ahead, Seth. I, I, I appreciate that comment because it's indicative of, of how we, we have a, this necessary knee-jerk reaction to politicize everything. So, you know, like, for example, in, in the schools in my neighborhood, as opposed to asking the questions that you guys have been discussing, I try to change the conversation. For example, it's hard to get to know new students when everyone's masked because you can't see their face. So I'm encouraging us classes to go outside and have an outdoor period where they can take their masks off and say hello to each other. Something like it. you got to use some common sense when you deal with kids. And that's, and that's a great idea, and right. I would hope that, that uh, teachers confronted with this challenge would be that creative, Seth. Well, that, that's the thing, though. We have to change, you know, as I say in the book, fight on reason with reason. We have to take it upon ourselves to change the conversation. If all people want to talk about is mandates, and ma you know, I, I'm going to talk about something that I think is more relevant, like how can students get to know each other with the barrier of masks? And I think that we can be creative. Outdoor sessions, we can do other things. So, so I mean, we have to just change the conversation. We have to claim back the conversation for what we think is important. Yeah, that sounds... That sounds like maybe I'm naive. Yeah, no. Clearly, it's <laughs> going to make 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 things much more difficult. I'm I'm so glad I don't I'm retired. Don't have to worry about that. I was talking to a colleague who's still teaching, and you know, trying to lecture while you've got a mask on, and all the students are wearing masks in the, in the classroom and things like that. And 
friend of mine was doing a presentation for uh, some grade school kids a while back, and she said that not only were they wearing masks, but there's you know plastic barriers around all the desks. So when somebody asks a question, you can barely hear what they're saying sometimes. It really makes so many things difficult. But again, it's just become a political football. It, you know, when you get these crowds turning up every time somebody you know, requires a mask in school, and uh, I don't know where we're going to end up with it. I think we lost Henry. Henry, are you still there? No, he'll he'll call we'll back and rejoin. Henry. I think unless <clears throat> he's, yeah. unless he's having a serious phone problem. Um, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I had to laugh at how. Um, how quickly bank tellers got comfortable with the idea of people walking into the lobbies wearing masks. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> two, two years. Yeah, these days, if you're going bank, what do you wear? <laughs> two, yeah, two two years ago, uh, that that would have been that would have made tellers a little uncomfortable. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. Uh, I think we I think we've got Henry back now. Yeah, my, we were talking about the airplane incident, and my phone went into airplane mode automatically. <laughs> <laughs> got to watch those keywords. Your phone's gonna go down. Right? <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, moving on. The Flint Police Department is working to integrate shot spotter technology into city surveillance cameras with the police chief which the police chief says would be free for a year under the department's current camera contract. The, de uh, the police department is in the research phase with this gunfire detection system technology meant to improve police response times to shots fired calls. Flint Police Chief Terrence Green told M Live the Flint Journal while the department is exploring the technology, Green said there is not a definitive date for when it would be installed. How effective do you think these devices might be in fighting gun violence in Flint? My, my only misgiving is that sometimes there's so much gunfire around that, I mean, police are going to be running themselves ragged. I mean, I even in my neighborhood here, I look at Facebook page, pages daily, and people are complaining, oh, they heard a shot here, they heard a shot there almost every other night. So I, I wonder if there's, there's so much of that around that... Uh, It'll detect it, but I say I wonder if the cops are going to be running ragged trying to chase it all down. Harlan Verrill from uh, Hurley Hospital um, used to make tape recordings on New Year's Eve of gunfire. Hmm. Just off his porch. <laughs> you know, you just go out with a recorder yeah, oh. and just, you know, record all the gunfire at midnight. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> wow. That's right. But yeah, I, I I wonder about that because I I'm sure there are um, cases of shootings that never get reported. And then there's always the well, case I mean, where. <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead, uh, Paul. Oh, I was going to say well, I live. I I I I frequently hear some sounds, and I'm I'm never quite sure if it's shooting or fireworks or what. But yeah. it's a frequent occurrence around here, and. Uh, does the and uh, do those uh, those devices di differentiate between fireworks and and gunfire? I don't know. I, I think you know, they do, but I'm not sure how well. 
Yeah, and, and uh, I, there I are don't people know, who like them. I don't know a lot about them. I, I know <laughs> that uh, it's it's a new technology that's being tried in a lot of places, and, and I wonder if um, if it isn't specifically designed for places where there is lots of gunfire to better identify where and when these things are happening. Yeah. Yeah. I remember you were talking, Paul, about, you know, occasionally hearing sounds and you weren't sure if they were fireworks or gunfire. I remember one time and it was it was in June. It was, you know, sort of getting close to the 4th of July. And I heard a bunch of uh, um, what I assume was fireworks. And I lived on the ground floor of uh, an apartment building over in Mott Park and I went to the window to look out to see if I could see any fireworks, and then I thought, what are you doing standing in front of the window? This could easily be gunfire. (laughs) (laughs) I I do the same thing. (laughs) I go on the front yard and say, is that fireworks or not? I I know what you're saying. (laughs) Wow. That's that's Uh, a good point. Well, one thing, I live up in the country, open space. Uh, and I can tell gunfire when I hear it. And people around me shoot all the time. They, they have their barricades and they practice this all the time. Is it disturbing? No. Now, when, now when you're used to it, you know, I think people who live around uh, near Williams uh, Gun Range. I remember my mother, before she passed away, moved into an apartment in Davison that was fairly close to there. And I remember being over at her place, and all of a sudden I heard all kinds of gunshots, and they were clearly gunshots. And I thought, wow, it's even happening out here. And then I realized we were, you know, just a stone throw from <laughs> William's gun site. Oh, that's right. The, the target you drive by there, you can hear it. That's right. But you don't have to worry about this ending <clears throat> Uh, taking a lot of time to come to a conclusion because they run out of their budget money. You know, you, these projectiles are expensive. And, mm. But it's, you know, people will shoot for a while and they're satisfied and go back. Uh, to but, doing but this reminds me, you know, this goes back a couple of mayors, but I remember um, the, the idea of so-called smart policing being talked about when uh, Dane Walling was mayor. And I I think this is the kind of thing that that he and others had in mind when they were talking about I don't think they ever found the money to do some of the things they would like to have done. But I I think, um, and and again, this could be COVID money, (laughs) but... (laughs) Putting shot spotter technology uh, into the city's surveillance uh, systems. Well, you know, I think maybe the real issue is, I mean, at any given time, how many officers are there on patrol? I mean, we were, we've talked before about uh, relatively how few police officers Flint has compared to other similar-sized cities. And uh, at, any, at any given time, how many officers are actually out there in in patrol cars around the city. Yeah, I would say uh, Flint is at or or slightly below half of what the national average would be for a city our size. Well, I, yeah, I recall I another one time when you did you did a show in Lansing. With, I think in Lansing there were approximately two hundred officers, and it's a somewhat similar sized city. 
and we've got about a hundred, I believe, at least last. Yeah, time that's what I saw last. About a hundred. Yeah. Has it changed over time? Yes, we used to have two hundred. Yeah, yeah. There was there was a time. Of course, the population was larger. Um, the the problem is is as the population has shrunk in in the city of Flint, Seth, the um, the people that remain tend to be the ones that are uh, dealing with the most um, anxiety. You know, there's right. a lot of people that that aren't working and. So there, you know, is this, uh, I'm not even sure what to call it, but but anxiety is as as good as I can come up with. Um, Mm -hmm. And and some would say hopelessness. And so there's there's a, a violent tendency with the people in the city of Flint, with a lot of people in the city of Flint. And, um... And, of course, it's a blue-collar town. It's always been a little bit rough and tumble. I mean, a Saturday night fight was, was recreation for some people. But, right. but now it's, it's gotten much grittier. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's a lot yeah, more that, shooting that goes on, mm-hmm. especially with young well, people. Go ahead, Henry. I'm Tom, I, 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 you know, I, I'd like to raise a question. You say that people are more depressed and and gritty and so on and so forth and out of order and stuff because there are no jobs and stuff like that. And all over the country, we're trying to get people to go back to work. They won't go back to work. So there, so when there are jobs here, you still have that element of people that won't get one if they if the job was offered to them. We have all of these jobs available and can't conduct our. Uh, I, I hear what you're saying. I hear what you're saying, Henry. But the the gun violence in Flint predates the the pandemic and and yeah. jobs job loss related to shutdowns yeah. and I'll buy that. Yeah. And okay. so on. Yeah. Flint has a history. Yeah, I, I think of the police this. and the, the police and the prosecutor often blame gangs on this, and particularly the inability to prosecute some because nobody wants to talk. You often you often hear them make a pitch and if you see something, say something. But you know, when somebody gets shot, all of a sudden nobody saw anything because they're afraid they're going to be the next one in line. And again, so but much of it is gang related. So my criticism my criticism, Tom, was not aimed at Flint. It's aimed at people in general. How they cripple the nation because they won't go back to work. Mm-hmm. When the when the businesses are begging for employees. That's all I have to say. Yeah, and I've had uh, several guests in recent weeks, and, and we've talked a lot about that, Henry, that... Um, the, the the estimate is there's 10 million jobs out there and 8 million unemployed people. And the, the question I always ask is, you know, how can we get these kids together? But but the problem is, I think, Henry, a lot of people have reassessed what they were doing with their lives and how they were being compensated. And they're looking for more than what the old normal was. And and I don't know how we, I don't know how we address that. But um, 
I need to take a mm-hmm. break here, and and we'll uh, we'll move on after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well, so don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination? A COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Tom Sumner Program has hosted live candidate forums for local, state, and national offices at bars, restaurants, coffee shops, and colleges. Armchair Politics has gone to Lansing, Frankenmuth, Birch Run, and Hell. Hell, Michigan, that is. We've done shows all the way to the Mighty Mac and back to the bricks. We've done remotes from a baseball stadium in Lansing, a grocery store opening in Flint, and from a moving train. We'd like you to tell us where to go next. You can write to us at TomSumnerProgram.com, call us at 810-339-8255, or contact us on Facebook. This is your chance to tell the Tom Sumner Program where to go. Say, objection. I object. I object to that, Your Honor. Oh, hi, Mom. What's up? Dana, what are you doing? Oh, you know, just um, Attorney General stuff. Listen, I have a legal question. What is it, Mom? I just got a call from the water company. Apparently, your father has not been paying the bill. I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than $1,000 now. Can you believe it? Actually, I can't. So listen, we just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam. Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, Report it to my office at mi 
www.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dina, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues on the Tom Sumner Program with our roundtable regulars, Paul Rosicki and Henry Hatter, joined by author Seth Radwell. Governor Gretchen Whitmer vetoed two bills Friday, including another GOP-backed effort to curtail powers used by the administration to combat COVID-19. The legislation attempted to prevent the Whitmer administration from using the public threat alert system to send out notifications regarding new mask rules, gathering restrictions, or similar health and safety orders. While the state did send out such alerts to millions of mobile devices earlier in the pandemic, it actually used a separate emergency alert system that was not addressed in this legislation. Is this as expected? It's well, a, I, you know, a symbolic I way of legislature striking back at the governor, but I'm not sure it's going to change much. But you know, I, I don't think I mean, the government, the governor, is too much interested in sending out a mandate on masks. She knows what the picture looks like, and for her to get involved in that with something that can't be enforced, I, I think that she's, uh, uh, she's avoiding uh, confrontations as much as. She can. Others may do different. They, but I think the government, the governor has a, a low expectation of getting involved in mandates of any kind. That's right. Well, I think she got, kind of got burned the first time around when she took a yeah. very strong stand on some of those issues, and she yes. backed off. And in fact, she's received some criticism now for, for for backing off from the other side of the fence a little bit. Um, and to be honest, I, I don't think I've ever received any of those those things on my phone that I can recall. Uh, it certainly hasn't been very frequent if they have happened at all. Uh, so they're, they're they're and they're not they're not exactly as irritating as robocalls we get on my landline. Yeah, I agree. Well, Governor. Uh... Whitmer on Tuesday urged the Republican-controlled legislature to repeal a 90-year-old law that criminalized abortion in Michigan, warning that the U.S. Supreme Court may overturn women's constitutional right to abortion. GOP legislative leaders oppose abortion and will not back the governor's request. A Democratic-sponsored bill that would rescind the 1931 law is stalled in a Senate committee. Whitmer made her appeal days after the high court decided not to block a new banning uh, or a law banning most abortions in Texas, with justices saying it likely was not the last word and other challenges can be brought. She said the court's 5-4 order sets the United States on a dangerous path toward overturning Roe v. Wade the landmark 1973 ruling that legalized abortion nationwide she called Michigan's law arcane. Is she likely to get anywhere 
with GOP legislators on this? Not on that issue. Probably not. Unfortunately, no. you know, uh, I was going to go back to, to in some ways to Seth's book again here. It, it was really curious how the abortion issue has become also a partisan one. There was a time, as I recall, when I, th I think it was Barry Goldwater's wife was active in Planned Parenthood, and I think, of course, Betty Ford was pro-choice during her time as yeah. well. So this was not always a partisan issue, but it's it has, of course, become that in the last couple of decades. Well, and, and the issue really flipped um, over the aisle during uh, the, the Reagan years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you got to remember that 50% of the people in this country are women. And 50% of the women represent 50% of either side of that issue. So it's not just a women's issue, but it's, uh, it's a complex issue. And women are women on both sides. I, I think, though, the point that, that you're, it's part of a longer trend, which um, go, goes back, I mean, if you look at how uh, political groups have shifted over the, over the decades, you know, remember that uh, uh, Jimmy Carter had a strong support from the evangelical community until he, he uh, infuriated them by not supporting their school program. So it, it, the combination of, uh, during those years when, uh, things were very differently aligned and I think you have to you have to remember that Lee that Lee Atwater for in the Reagan uh, campaign years was really one of the masterminds behind understanding how for the first time I think in a, in a while that emotional issues motivated voters more than kitchen table issues and so as much as you know let's say Reagan's campaign was about uh, free markets and the economy a lot of the messaging was around what we now sometimes call wedge issues related to uh, um, fear and emotions, et cetera. Well, and in, uh, you know, under Lee Atwater's uh, leadership of the uh, Republican National Committee, um, they were able to attract Catholics, which historically had been Democrats, <coughs> over to the right side of the sure. aisle yeah. and the abortion yeah. issue went with them you know it was and uh, many evangelicals yeah exactly and and it was uh democrats that were more likely to protect the unborn baby and republicans that would support a woman's right to choose prior to the reagan years and then the issue sort of flipped sides yes Interesting. Very um, interesting. Former Detroit Police Chief James Craig said Wednesday he plans to launch his Republican campaign for governor in Detroit yesterday, followed by other events around the state. Craig said on Facebook he will appear at an event on uh, Belle Isle in Detroit at 10, followed by events in Flint and Grand Rapids. The events are billed as his campaign kickoff tour. Um, Announced candidates seeking the Republican nomination so far include Michigan State Police Captain Mike Brown of Stevenson, Stevensonville, uh, conservative uh, cable TV commentator Tudor Nix, or Dixon 
of Muskegon County, Kalamazoo chiropractor Garrett Soldano. I didn't realize there were this many. Oakland County Pastor Ralph uh, Riband and Ottawa County real estate agent Ryan Kelly. Uh, let's see, there's uh, a few more here. Um, Livingston County evangelical uh, evangel uh, evangelist and substitute teacher Bob Scott. Document specialist Artisha Bomer of Detroit. Lansing businessman Evan Space and Grand Rapids entrepreneur and U.S. Army veteran Austin Change. How is Craig's timing and strategy leading up to this announcement? I, I, all I heard was that yesterday, it sounded like that, that rally yesterday went kind of badly. There were a number of protesters and so forth. I saw just quick coverage of it, but I, uh, I don't know if there's any more details anybody else has got. But it sounded like it was kind of a rocky rollout yesterday, apparently. Did, did he have, um, I, I didn't see where he had uh, any real turnout or, or presence in Flint. Um, did you see anything I didn't see, Paul? No, I did not. No, I did not, did not see any of that. Like I said, I, I think it was in Detroit, though, I believe it. There were some angry protesters, and then, again, the, the quick clip that I saw sounded like he frankly, didn't, didn't handle it particularly well, so it's hard to say. You know, I, I, my, my guess is the Republican Party would like to avoid a divisive primary, and they're sort of getting behind Craig, but, uh, you know, this is really the first time he's run in, in this kind of a, a large election, and sometimes you wonder if he's ready for prime time. Well, uh, in addition to that, in addition to that, you would not expect for uh James Craig to do well in urban centers. And there's a reason for that. True. Yeah, you would not. His vote is going to be one on the outside of urban centers. It's going to be one with the white yeah. vote. Yeah. And because, because well, we all know that. Because he's a Republican? Well because, admit it. because he's a Republican no. or because he's a police well, chief? Uh, I think it's chief. because... I, and that's a complex issue. First of all, although Americans, black Americans, are getting accustomed to voting for Republicans, but that number is not yet there. So um, he's going to get, he has to work uh, diligently on the outside of uh, urban centers. He has to also penetrate the urban centers because there are people there that are waiting for him. But his emphasis has got to be on the white vote. Interesting. Yeah, and for Seth's benefit, and of course uh, the key thing is in a former uh, police chief. I was going to say in a Republican primary, you're going to have you know clearly a much more, very much of a white vote and a rural vote for Republican primary. So that the, the key thing is the primary first. And uh, what were there? Were there eight eight other names you had there, Tom? Something like that. Yeah. Um, and and I just wanted. Yeah, to, you know, it's a much I longer just, list than I expected. And, and I just wanted to say for Seth's benefit so he would understand uh, Henry's comments um, that uh, former Detroit Police Chief James Craig is black. He's a black Republican. Right. And I, I have to say, you, you guys are amazing. I, I mean, your knowledge of, of obviously local politics is something I try not to weigh in on because Paul and Henry and you, Tom, 
you guys are right on top of all the issues going on. So you well, don't have to. You don't have to and <laughs> Seth, I try, I try to, and I, and I try to give enough of the story to give you a little context and a little perspective in case you do have comments on some of these right. uh, local and state issues. Um, you know, of course, right. in the second half, which is uh, coming up in just a moment or so, we'll uh, we'll get more into some national things that I'm sure Seth will want to weigh in on more. But we have the same problem with Mark Everson, but he's always fascinated by Flint politics. <laughs> he, he but, gets a and also, hey, Henry, I, I don't want to cut you off. We're going to take a short break, <laughs> and we'll be back with the I got to say this about Seth when he comes back. Okay. We'll be, all right, we'll be Thank right you. back. Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 